Welcome to Wonder Tour with Derek Cobb and Drew Perot, where we are learning leadership lessons from your favorite stories. Hi, I'm Brian Nutwell. And I'm Drew Perot. And we are on a journey to become better leaders by touring fantastic worlds and inspiring lore by going on a wonder tour. We connect leadership concepts to story context because it sticks to our brains better. You can find out more at wondertourpodcast.com. We're back with Inside Out Part 2. In Part 1, we tried to figure out what role our emotions play in our limit breaks. In doing so, we looked at how we individually go through a limit break and we focused on internally the changes that need to happen so that we can eventually achieve the external change that the limit break is offering. So in part two, we're gonna talk about how to lead a team through a limit break. Because if we wanna be magnanimous leaders for the good of others, then we want to help other people to change and transform so that they can become magnanimous leaders as well. One of the greatest challenges in the limit break is that there's these internal aspects that have to happen. And because of that, we can't just force external change on somebody. We can't instigate a limit break in somebody else just because we want it to happen. As a result, we're going to have to use a more nuanced approach here to help another person through a limit break. As it relates to Inside Out, we're going to look at how joy has a limit break alongside the four other emotions where they come to understand that they need to operate in balance in order to have Riley thrive in her new environment. So as we help our teams and the people that we lead, whether it's up, down, side to side, to navigate change, what are some tactics that we can use in order to help other people to achieve limit breaks in their own lives? Welcome to Wonder Tour. Thanks, Drew, and welcome back, everyone. I'm Brian. In part two here, I want to mention something that we talked about a little bit, that the limit break recipe or metaphor is not necessarily the all-encompassing view of the world. It's an encapsulation of a pattern that we have seen, that we recognize that if you're living in the larger world, you're naturally going to experience change. You're going to experience changed environments that you have to navigate, new roles that you have to embrace, externally imposed goals and challenges that you see that you want to go after. And so what we're asserting here is that this sort of pattern is very common when embracing or when being confronted with a new challenge. And so when you're the leader, one of the things to realize is that those around you are continuously experiencing this. There's not just one that they need to break through the one limit and then they're fine forever. Just like you are, everyone on your team, all of your colleagues, even your bosses are continuously being confronted with new challenges and changed realities. And they're continuously going through the cycle of dissatisfaction and realization and, and paying the cost to get to that flow state all the time internally. And so if you recognize that and you recognize that these really strong, really real emotions are a natural part of that, an unavoidable part of that, then the magnanimous leader also has to be emotionally intelligent. The magnanimous leader has to be willing to grapple with those emotions, to let them happen, to validate them, but not to wallow in them, to get to the point of the new flow state. This is an ongoing process, and everybody that you work with is in one or more of these states in one or more situations in their lives at all times. They might be in a complete Zen mode JavaScript programming flow state where they're the Jedi master of the office and be grappling with grief for a thing that's happened in their real life or in their personal life, right? Or the other way around. You might have somebody who was a complete rock star in their last job and has absolutely no idea how to be a team leader and is grappling with dissatisfaction that they don't get to write code or walk the floor and turn wrenches anymore. So that's kind of what I want to talk about in this episode here is this 
recognition, how do you use that recognition? How do you leverage the reality of emotions and the reality of grappling with change as a team leader? And if much as possible, let's see if we can get some examples, because I'm sure we have some really good ones. Yeah, and let's just start with a what if, and I think we can probably find some examples for this one. So our what if's a little bit different this week. It's not necessarily a what if about Inside Out, but we can relate it back to some stories from Inside Out. Our what if is, what if you manage a team where the goal is to maximize joy and in doing so to minimize the other emotions? Yeah, this is a real thing, right? Professionalism in quotes, (laughs) professionalism with a capital P in many Western companies sort of expects that you will show up and do your job and that it's certainly welcomed to enjoy your work, right? To like, you know, oh, I'm I'm really looking forward to this challenge and I'm going to be great. Like, you know, I'm going to post on LinkedIn about how stimulated I am by my new work team and by my the new thing that I'm working on. That's socially acceptable, but it is often less socially acceptable to show fear, to show sadness, to show disgust. I can't believe that we're doing this stupid thing in my company and I've got to fill it. You know, you might do that privately with peers, but you're not supposed to message that to your work group. And I've actually seen and experienced this and probably fallen victim to this myself is if you manage your team with the goal that you just want them to have joy all the time, you're going to do what Riley's parents did, which is you're going to coddle them. You're going to protect them from scary things. You're going to avoid having hard conversations with them, even when you need to, because you don't want to have a negative interaction. You're going to find your own emotions bubbling up. You'll get angry at them because they're not getting along with each other or because they're not showing super professionalism or not showing a positive attitude without necessarily dealing with the deeper changes or dissatisfactions that might be driving those other emotions. Yeah, I can see how this has happened. You know, I'm normally a very joyful person. And so there's been times that I can look back at where I've tried to maximize joy, especially when you're going through a challenging time as a team where there's a lot of changes that are happening. I can think of like a reorg that happened and we need to drive some joy into people. But there's also a lot of sadness that goes with a reorg because maybe you're not working with the same people that you used to work with, or maybe you're not getting to do the same job or sit in the same office or whatever it might be. And as we said, humans tend to have sadness and all the other emotions when they go through changes that impact them. And so what I've seen is that when you maximize joy in that way, there are certain people that will latch onto it. And they're the people who probably are processing their emotions themselves a little bit more. And so they're like, okay, the next quarter or whatever, we're going to bring joy to work and we're going to kind of, you know, we can process, but we're going to kind of try to be joyful about this. Just try to keep spirits up. But then you get lean outers. You definitely create lean outers when you try to maximize joy and minimize the other emotions, because there's going to be certain people that naturally gravitate towards some of the other emotions, even at work, and we don't open up the floor to those emotions, it can be really challenging for those people. And they're just not going to felt heard or felt like they're integrated with the team. And so their natural reaction is just going to be to lean out and just do only what's required to get the job done. And inevitably, they're going to feel less attached to the mission, which obviously is going to be problematic when we're trying to create a limit break. Yeah, no, that we didn't say this so explicitly in the last episode, but I almost want to suggest that if the emotions are markers of your state and of your alignment with the with your environment, the joy is a pretty good marker for the flow state, right? Like you at least feel like things are going well and you know what to do and you're satisfied when it goes well. But because it's transient, you can't just be sitting in the joy state forever. Like you have to be overcoming challenges. And so you're going to have some anger and sadness, you know, in there. But generally, if you're consistently experiencing joy, that's a pretty good clue that you're in a flow state with your environment. But if we are seeing the other emotions dominate, like you said, 
if we're seeing much more commonly that one individual is expressing anger all the time, right? Mm-hmm. That's a pretty good clue that they're not in a flow state. That's a pretty good clue that they are dissatisfied about something, whether or not they've explicitly realized it. And so I wonder if as a leader, sometimes you can model what's acceptable, right? Like, you know, the, the way that I behave is we're going to do this org change and everything's going to be great. And every time something happens, like, okay, well, we're going to, we got this new policy and I know it's going to be kind of onerous, but it's going to be great for, it's a really good idea, right? If the only thing you ever model is positive reactions to things, if the only thing that you sort of allow yourself to express, or the only thing that you reward in your team expressing is positive emotions or professionalism, the lack of negative emotions, then, you know, people will follow that. People will like, oh, I guess I'm only allowed to be happy. But the other emotions, they don't go away. Like they don't forget to feel anger and sadness because the leader doesn't let them show it. It just means that it's getting suppressed and it's happening in conversations that you're not present for. And it's happening when they go rolling the job boards to look for a better place to work. So to some extent, you don't want to dump on your associates. You don't want to vent to people that don't have control over things that it's your job to manage. But expressing like, yeah, this is going to be hard work. Like, (laughs) this is going to be challenging for us to get through this, or I'm really disappointed about this. We thought we had this goal as an organization, and we've just had that goal change, or this team's going to get broken up. Expressing that that is a new reality that's going to be difficult to deal with. Do you think that that's valuable as a leader? Have you had somebody kind of express their anger or their sadness as a leader? Would that help you move through a transition time? Yeah, I mean, that's what I've seen from some of the best leaders, because I think what you tend to see is that as people move up in a corporation, they are taught to show less emotions. Like you said, that capital P professionalism, toe the line, make sure that you're sticking to the vision, sticking to the values, that sort of thing when you're speaking. But truly, some of the best leaders that I've seen have reached that level, but have not given up the ability to wear their emotions. It's not that you're following the classic example of like somebody who wears their emotions on their shoulder. That's a fine line to walk trying to wear your emotions on your shoulder. That's a little bit dangerous because as a adult and as a leader, especially, we have to be careful how we utilize our emotions. We can't just let them erupt out of us all the time. That is not (laughs) self-mastery. And at the same time, we can't just repress our emotions to the point where we're always just coming up with a straight face and saying, Yep, well, this is the change in the outside business environment, and this is what I'm going to ask the team to do in order to address it. Because when you do that, you get a lot of alienated people that feel like their dissatisfaction is going to be with you instead of with the outside state of things. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. No, I think that's a really good distinction is that a piece of the wisdom might be to recognize how much of the dissatisfaction comes from the changes in the external state. And it's very natural to do what Riley does in this movie and what Joy does internally, right, is to just blame that on the people or take it out on the people. I'm dissatisfied because you're screwing things up. My parents aren't taking care of me because sadness is messing things up, right? And especially as the leader, if you're dissatisfied with the state of things and you express that as anger or disgust towards your subordinates, or you express that as fear, you message to your team that they should fear other work groups in the same organization or fear the bosses. They're going to, they're going to come down on us. And so we got to avoid, you know, screwing up. That is misplaced like that. That is, that can potentially be really destructive. The dissatisfaction is there's this change in the environment that we didn't foresee or that we haven't figured out how to grapple with yet, that our, our flow isn't working with yet. And so you've got to be willing to give the emotions value, but not necessarily point them, especially at subordinates. 
if you model that it's okay to yell at people, right? If you model that it's okay to to be fearful of others or to be angry at others, then that very much devolves into sort of the everyone for themselves model of the team, where I think that it is appropriate to deploy those emotions, to be a little bit vulnerable as a leader. Like, I'm really upset about this and we have to work together to figure out how we're going to thrive in this new environment. That's potentially valuable, I'd suggest. But the, you know, I'm really scared about this because you guys keep screwing up. Maybe not such a great technique. Again, let's go back to our movie and look at some examples here. The moment we selected as the mountaintop this time is Joy, who is kind of the leader of the team inside Riley's head, right? On screen, she's the leader. And she has this very monotone leadership approach. Her goal is that we're going to be joyful all the time and the other emotions are not skillful, are things that we should just damp down. And so she has a moment where, as they're going through the the subconscious realm, trying to get back to the, the control room, she has a moment where sadness comforts the character they picked up along the way, the imaginary friend named Bing Bong, who is sort of bouncing around in the subconscious, has been abandoned by Riley's conscious mind. She's too old for an imaginary friend. But he hasn't really dealt with the fact that she's not coming back, that he's not getting back into, into her life. And so there's this moment where sadness as the character and as the emotion sort of comforts Bing Bong and lets him just express that he's really sad about this change in the world, that there is no going back. This is the realization moment that there is no going back. And this is Joy's first time as a character. It's for her first time as a leader to recognize like, oh, that's a real thing. And there's power, there's value, there is growth in acknowledging and just being with that sadness just sitting there and recognizing, oh, that's the change, and it's a real change, and I can't do anything about it. What strikes me about sadness in this situation is just how sadness really has compassion. If we go back to our compassion series on Bing Bong, she sits down next to him and is there with him. She doesn't have anything to offer him necessarily. She can't give him a path forward where he doesn't eventually blink out of existence and Riley forgets about him, but She's just there with him. And and we talked about that's the first step of compassion is just to sit on the curb next to somebody and just be. And then we have the piece next to it, which is Joy watching the situation. And while Joy doesn't have anything to offer in the situation, this is kind of the first time where her mind starts to turn and she starts to think, oh, yeah, sadness does have something to offer that I have been discounting previously. And we need to figure out a way to utilize sadness instead of just trying to put her in this box over here and say, don't touch anything. And that's really what Joy's journey is here is just seeing the value of sadness. And in seeing the value of sadness, she comes to understand the value of all of the other emotions as well. And she is meant to be the leader of the emotions, right? Joy is the silver lining to all the other emotions, ideally. She comes to understand her role inside of Riley through the other characters. And I think that's one thing that we can take away as leaders is your role is not only determined by the person up from you in the organization. It's not just your boss who tells you exactly what your role is. I think, Brian, we have had some of the greatest successes by figuring out roles that we need to play by looking at the people side to side and below us and saying, hey, nobody's telling me to play this role. But I have to, basically. It's not going to show up on my performance review that I played this role. But if my goal is to see these people break limits, then I'm going to have to curate an experience for them where they can experience sadness, where they can process their anger or something. In this situation, sadness might not be our team member. The way I'm looking at it, maybe Bing Bong's your team member. And they're realizing, like, hey, I'm never going to be able to do X. Or 
I thought that I was going to be able to do this thing and that path, that door just closed on me and they need to go through some sadness. And it's like, okay, well, how do we come alongside them in that moment? Yeah, a big step of that is just recognizing this is a real problem. This is a thing. Like nobody's assigned me to fix this thing, but it's a thing. And I just need to give it a little bit of daylight. We talked a lot about that in the data world, right? Is that sometimes you just, you'll let the data tell you what it tells you. It can be a window into something that's happening in your organization, but sometimes it's just talking to people and just letting them tell you what's happening, even if it's not, even if it's not uniformly positive. So one of the things I was thinking about here is that organizations that are designed around change, that are good at change, recognize this. They have processes that are designed to help the leaders manage transitions, manage change. Like Not like it's a surprise and not like, go figure it out. Congratulations, you're the boss. One example I was thinking of was like in the military, you know, you'll have forced change all the time. Even if, even if you're not at war, people are getting promoted or assigned to different units or different squadrons or different, you know, platoons or whatever all the time. And at least the little pieces of it that I'm familiar with in the Navy, they have change of command ceremonies where you have a new commander coming in and an old commander leaving. And you don't just do it. And the old commander's job is not to vent like, well, I've loved this job, but now I have to leave it. And it's really stupid. And I don't, I'm not excited about my new thing. And the new guy's going to be a jerk. That's not the commander's job is to vent all the negative emotions onto their team. But to recognize this is a change and it is happening. And one way you can skillfully handle that is to celebrate it. It's just to say, hey, look, these are all the great things that happened in this formation of the team with these people, with this leader. These are the things that happened. These are the successes that we had. And we're definitely changing and we're looking forward. And here's the new person. And here's the reason that they're going to be great. And we're going to kick it off with a party or we're going to kick it off with a ceremony, like a ritual to acknowledge the change. And I think that's a real thing, right? If you're experiencing a change in your work group, or if you've got, like you said, an enforced org change, an unskillful way to handle it that I might have used in the past is to like just sort of announce it to your team and be kind of bummed about it and then let them deal with the new thing. And a more skillful way to handle that might have been together with the new leader, announce the change and talk about all the great things we've accomplished and talk about the challenges that we're going to undertake and why the new leader is the right person to do it. That would be much more motivational and maybe acknowledge the challenges, give people permission to not be super excited about it, but at least don't message that this stinks. Give people an opportunity to kind of crystallize those memories like, hey, we did this stuff as a team. We've done these things in this organization of the team, this incarnation. And now we're reacting to change in the world by making this new incarnation and it's going to have to form its new memories and new habits in its own new flow state. Those core memories are going to change, and some of them are going to get swapped out entirely as we move forward. But for a magnanimous leader, the path forward is ideally growth, at least in the mid to long term, though there might be some stumbles along the way that we need in order to better understand ourselves. I don't know. I guess one example I can give, and Brian, I really appreciate you sharing that with me because that's a good learning for me, how the military changes command through celebration. Just a little tactic to pick up on there. I can see in the past, like things that we've done is, like you said, the joy events, having those big marquee joy events are really, really important. And then, like you said, spicing in a little bit of the other emotions into those joy events is totally fine to have that memory like Riley has with the skating rink or whatever after they, the team lost and then she was comforted by her family and she has the sadness and then she has the joy to go with it. 
those are the most powerful memories. The most powerful memories are rarely the ones that are a single emotion. It's when you have complexity of emotion that it can really become a core memory where it generally gets capped off with a new understanding, a transformation, a change, a limit break moment. And so remembering those limit break moments can be the celebration. But then in smaller terms, I think it's really important. And you can't do this in a town hall or something in front of a million people. Like it's probably not great to go and share some of the more challenging emotions to share in front of that large of a group of people. But in front of a smaller group of people, we used to have a meeting at one point that it was an hour every week and we would all get together and the team would just talk about things. It wasn't like, oh, everybody come in and share a demo of what you're working on or anything like that. It was just, let's just get the team together to talk and let's process some stuff. And if people have questions about what's going on at the company or the vision or whatever, this is a great time to ask them. If they have questions about what should their priorities be or who should they be working with and stuff, that's another time to ask them. Or if they're dealing with personal things that they really want to bring up to the rest of the team, that's okay as well to bring those into this moment. I mean, we would spend at least half the time talking about personal things that people were going through, whether they were having a baby, whether they had to have surgery, whether they were going through, you know, their loved one was in hospice or something. We'd spend a lot of time having those conversations and it really made people feel heard. You know, I had moments in there and I know that this isn't everybody's personality, but I strongly believe that as a magnanimous leader, there are times that it is good to cry in front of people. They really need to see it sometimes. They need to know that you two share emotions and that you're really invested into things to the point where you care so much about them. You care so much about seeing positive change that you're going to get emotional about it sometimes. And so I can think of a number of times where, like you said at the beginning, Brian, leaders model what is acceptable, where I would just tear up in that meeting while talking about either a personal thing or or a purpose or something like that. And I did get a number of, well, I got direct and indirect feedback, right? The indirect feedback is other people did it a couple times as well. And the direct feedback was some people reached out and said, I've never had a boss who ever did that to me before, whoever actually normalized having emotion. Yeah, no. And that's betraying my biases. I had a slip of the tongue earlier where I used work life contrasted with real life, right? (laughs) Which is, I think uh, that's a professionalism with a capital P thing, right? Oh, you know, I've just, I've, I've sequestered off this work life piece of myself, but It's important to recognize many people want to be very selective about what they share at work, and we should respect that boundary. But you will absolutely have team members for which work is a central or the central piece of their identity, a central or the central piece of their human experience, and certainly a place that they spend more of their waking hours than anywhere else. We're often challenged with that. And if you're fortunate, It's because you're doing a thing that you enjoy doing, and it's because you have the opportunity to work on something that you believe in. But if that's the case, if you've done a great job as a leader and you've hired people who are right for the job and who believe in the mission and who are willing to give the extra, the canonical 110%, right? If you've set that up, then guess what? You get all the emotions that go with it. You will get people that are very fearful and very angry and very disgusted and very joyful and very sad at different times during the day, depending on how that's going. And like we said back at the beginning, just the recognition that that is a natural part of breaking the limits of getting the team to level up, getting the individuals to level up, and that not only you shouldn't avoid it, 
to some extent, you almost have to encourage it. You have to put people in a position to do things that they will be uncomfortable with, which will cause them to experience fear and sadness so that they can embrace the mission, have the realizations, get aligned and find a new flow state so they can achieve a new level of capability and do your job so you can go do something even better. Become amazing at the thing that you needed them to be amazing at, right? That inherent set of overcoming challenges is part of the job. What this movie is showing us, what this conversation is showing us is that you kind of can't do that without embracing and validating and being very intentional about managing the whole spectrum of emotions that come along with that human experience. So what if this is just coming on me, but I mean, what if the realization that we're taking away from this wonder tour is the exact same realization that Inside Out was trying to teach us all along, the same realization that Riley had and that Joy had? We have to fuse emotions to be able to have limit breaks. So that town hall that we talked about where the leader's going to stand at the front in front of a thousand people, maybe, yeah, it's not good to be angry when you're up there, but maybe just think about the complexity of emotion that goes along with the story that it's trying to be shared and figure out how do we layer in multiple emotions instead of just making this thing all rah, rah, joy, everybody should just be happy to be here and be involved in this challenge. And then in the micro moment that we talked about, where maybe you're sitting with a smaller team of people and you only have a dozen people or something in the room with you, that's another opportunity to say, okay, well, maybe there's some sadness here that somebody's going through. Well, how do we end cap that sadness with joy or something like that? How do we help people to feel more comfortable bringing in the more traditionally thought of as negative emotions by layering them with the positive emotions so that they can see like, you know, maybe I need to, in my daily work, start to engage. Like you said at the beginning, the leader models what's acceptable. If the leader models that it's acceptable to engage with all of your emotions and help them be a part of your daily story, I think that's going to enable us to break more limits than if we're so fixated on, oh, we just need this emotion to get us past this task right now. Yeah, no, that's great. I think that's exactly as you just said, engaging with the with the emotions as real things and as real indicators of the natural process. Yeah, and maybe the value of the town hall is not that it validates emotions. Like the value of the town hall is the mission and the realization, like this is what you need to get aligned with. Congratulations, here's our new reality. That's like, you can get that out of a meeting with a thousand people. But I think you're right that the grappling with the emotions and the grappling with the, okay, how are you feeling about that? And what are the things that you're fearful about? And what are the things that we're leaving behind that you're sad about? And how do we get to this new thing? That has to be done at a much smaller level. That has to be done in a small team. That has to be done one-on-one. And it has to be done internally in our heads, right? Recognizing that people are going to need just time to process and time to express and going to take a couple false starts that, you know, I'm getting on the bus and going back to Minnesota, right? We're going to, you're going to get some of that too, before you really converge on the team in a new flow state with the new mission, with people sort of balanced back out. Yeah. Limit breaks happen from the inside out. I mean, (laughs) 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 it's true though. and And I think we'll engage with that further in future episodes, but they happen from the inside out. And so if we want to engage with other humans, some of the most effective way to do that is through emotions. It's through trying to read and understand what they're going through. It's trying to first understanding what we're going through, like we talked about in the first episode, because chances are, if you saw the news that the company posted and it made you angry or something like that, the team's probably angry. At least somebody on it is. So probably best to figure out how to engage with that 
and follow the narrative arc, try to understand both the overall narrative arc and what emotions it's going to drive and the individuals, right? Because you're responsible for those individuals. How do you try to understand their emotions? And guess what? If they're shut off entirely, if you got a Riley situation where you have no access to somebody's emotions, that's another episode that we got to talk about how to address that. But there's definitely a problem there as well. Right. All right. Well, let's wrap this one up. What, uh, what did we get from our key takeaways? If you're a leader in a changing environment or a leader that recognizes that you want to challenge your people to break their own limits, what are our key takeaways here? Say number one is definitely leaders model what is acceptable. So it starts with part one, our own emotions, figuring out how to display our emotions, making sure that we don't go too emotional or not emotional enough. And kind of like we just talked about, tie the emotions to the narrative. Really, really critical that when you have that town hall or whatever, I know a bad example that we keep going back to, though, if you're going to share bad news, think about the narrative and how the emotions of the people are going to rise and fall during that sharing of that information and then figure out how do I cap this off in a productive way? which leads us to another takeaway, which is the fusing of the emotions enables limit breaks. We will not achieve limit breaks with singular emotions. That's how we achieve bad limit breaks when we try to let anger be the driver of our limit break or something like that, which is a very common occurrence in the world. Try to make joy be the only driver of a limit break and we try to initiate it, then what we end up with is unprocessed sadness, (laughs) like we see with Riley. Right, or maybe the only way they can experience joy is doing the thing that they already know, the old flow state, that's not a limit break, right? For me, the realization, exactly as you said, you know, if you're modeling what's acceptable and you're grappling with the fact that emotions are natural outcomes of dissatisfaction, natural outcomes of change, then you want to lead as if those emotions are valid, but also as if those emotions will eventually converge to a new solution. And you want to encourage your people through that. You encourage your people that it's healthy to have these emotions as part of getting better, as part of becoming more skillful or a better or a more harmonious team or aligning with the reality. And then calling back to our last episode, the other thing that I wanted to just call out again was that one of those things that you might have to do, the paying the cost piece of it, will often involve letting go. Letting go of this is our identity as a work group. This is my identity as a As a developer rather than as a leader, this is the kind of company or the kind of industry that we thought we worked in. You may have to let go of some old habits and some old expectations of reality to be able to get across that limit break. And as a team, that's also important to grapple with. Yeah, Brian. So to have that limit break, it's really critical that we take all these skills that we're learning as magnanimous leaders and our takeaway from inside out overall is that these limit breaks happen from the inside out. So it starts with us, it moves to other people, but to really remain focused on what is going on internally of that person before we even try to figure out how we're going to get it to reflect externally. Awesome. Limit breaks happen from the inside out. If you remember nothing else, I think we should probably hold on to that one. That's fabulous. Next week, we are going to shift gears pretty substantially from the Pixar universe to the James Bond movie universe. We're going to hit Skyfall, and we're going to talk about scaling up our conception of limit breaks to the organizational level. And we'll talk about how the personal experience of going through a limit break can be coupled with organizational growth and how that scales up. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. See you next time. And until then, just remember, as always, character is destiny.